0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to the New Book Network. I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today we'll be talking with John M. Jennings, author of the book The Uncertainty Solution, How to Invest with Confidence in the Face of the Unknown. How are you doing today?
0: I am doing fantastic. Thank you for having me on.
1: Thank you. I wonder if you could start by saying a few words about yourself and how you got started on this project.
0: Yeah, sure. So I've worked in wealth management in some way, shape or form my entire career. I started as an estate planning attorney and then worked at Arthur Anderson, which I have to explain to younger people was a big five accounting firm. Now there's just the big four, but it went out of business in the wake of the Enron scandal in 2002. And then we started our our current firm 21 years ago out of the ashes of Arthur Anderson. It kind of gives you the uh gives me the perspective that you know sometimes bad things can turn out well <laughs> cuz uh, uh our current firm is great so we we're located in St. Louis, Missouri but we're what's known as a multi-family office and we work with clients nationwide um we oversee about 15 billion dollars for 63 client families so it's about a 200 and something million dollar average. So we're we're mainly in the 50 to 500 million dollar space. So we we handle all things financial for our clients, including investing. So I was interested in writing this book uh, partly uh, for our clients to, to help them Um, but also to help anybody that's interested in investing, to to help them have less worry and anxiety about uncertainty and to have more confidence about investing, whether they're doing it themselves or receiving investment advice from an advisor.
1: Well, you talk about the wisdom hierarchy at the very beginning. Tell the audience about that concept.
0: Yeah, so the wisdom hierarchy is really a way to think about information. And this organizational theorist uh, came up with it in 1989. And it, it really think of it as a pyramid where the base of the pyramid, you have data. And at the very top of the pyramid, you have wisdom. And to understand how this is an effective mental model, you can think of data as really just raw facts, right? So I think we all know what, in general, what data is, but it would be things like housing starts. So just a uh, just a list of you know facts about housing starts in the US. The next level is information. So this is data that has been categorized or made more useful. So if you took housing starts and you divided it into different categories, maybe by you know the price of the house that's being constructed or the zip code, you could start seeing some trends in terms of you know what the housing starts are saying about the economy. The, the level up from that is knowledge where you take different items of information and you put them together. So you could take housing starts and along with, you know, unemployment claims and interest rates and inflation, and maybe GDP growth, you can maybe get a sense for where you are in the market cycle. And then wisdom is the, the most rare, but the most precious and wisdom is your ability to take all that mainly knowledge and know what to do with it. So wisdom would tell you that even though you may know sort of where you are in the market cycle, that you know that you can't consistently or effectively time market tops and bottoms. So you would plan accordingly. So that is the, the wisdom hierarchy. And I think it's a great way to think about where we should all focus our Energies and attention, and you know, early in my career, I spent a lot of time in the data and information realms. And what I have done over the last few decades is really pull myself more into the knowledge, and especially you know, focusing on on wisdom. And what I hope to do for readers with my book is help them move more into that wisdom area of making decisions in the face of uncertainty.
1: Now, at the end of each chapter you talk about the mental model of investing. Tell us more about that.
0: Yeah, so the the concept of a a mental model was something that was pioneered by Charlie Munger, who, of course, is Warren Buffett's business partner. And both Charlie and Warren are known for being incredibly wise and, and also astute investors and incredibly wealthy, of course. But back in 1994, Charlie Munger gave a talk at USC's business school. And the topic that he, he was speaking about was how to be a worldly wise person, mainly how to make great decisions. And, and what he said is that to become a worldly wise person, you need to develop mental models. And he described these as these are just models that you keep in your head of how the world works in reality, not like how you wish it would work, but how it works in reality in different areas. And he said, if you have 80 to 90 of them, that Will help you carry most of the freight, as he puts it, and doing what you need, uh, uh, knowing what you need to know to be a worldly wise person, and and so what I've done in my book is take this concept of mental models, which really he was referring to making business decisions or maybe life decisions, and have them with respect to an investment bent or focus. So you, you know what I've found is is effective investors, whether they're advisors or receivers of advice pull out appropriate mental models that will help them make decisions when faced with uncertainty. So my book covers 35 different essential investment mental models.
1: In chapter two, looking for causes in all the wrong places, you found out something very interesting in female leadership and performance. Share that with the audience.
0: Yeah. So, in the chapter about correlation versus causation, really I talk about how hard it is to determine that one thing causes another. And a pretty interesting example of that was where I was at an investment conference and I met this woman who was the CEO of an investment firm. And I said, You know, what does your firm do? What's your investment philosophy? And she said, Well, it's very simple. We only invest in firms that have strong female leadership, either female, you know, CEO, strong membership on the boards of directors, because what we have found is is that uh, female-led firms tend to outperform male-led ones. And I was like, wow, that is fascinating. And my mind jumped to all the reasons why, you know, female leadership might be superior. And I went back and I researched it and I did find that female-led firms had handsomely outperformed male-led ones of, you know, public stocks. And the research detailed all these potential reasons why female firms may um, you know perform better. Like one would be that females tend to make about 70% of the buying decisions in households. And so maybe female leaders are more in tune to what those female consumers want, which you know again make up make most of the choices. Maybe Female leaders are better than male leaders because of the glass ceiling and all the issues that, you know, the extra, uh, you know, hoops that a female has to jump to to get to the high highest corporate rank. So maybe they're just better leaders to begin with. Or maybe it's because females tend to be a little bit more risk adverse. So they're not as likely to make costly errors and so on. So Boyd with this research, I had discussed with our investment committee, maybe this should be a strategy we employ. And not longer after that, I met with one of my clients who's one of the the smartest people I know. um, And I told him about this research. He said, that's very interesting, but is it possible that females aren't the cause of outperformance? Maybe there is a Common cause, and female leadership as a symptom, and and I'll tell you, like, based on the research I did, and wanting to believe this, um, you know, I I would have pushed back against most other people, but this this particular client is incredibly erudite, so I decided to do something that was really difficult. I went back and I researched the opposite argument, and I did find some support that says that it's really high-performing firms. That focus more on having uh, gender diverse leadership, <laughs> so that maybe it is if you're already performing strongly, you're more likely to say now let's focus on you know uh, having uh, females in our executive ranks and on our boards, et cetera. So the jury's out. The, you know this this other contrary research doesn't say that females don't cause outperformance. It merely has some suggestions in its own data suggesting that maybe there's a common cause there. And so my point in, in having this story in the book really has less to do with do females cause outperformance or not. It's that whenever you, we jump to conclusions that one thing causes another, it really behooves us to go dig deeper and maybe research uh, contrary arguments. I, I think it's really a, 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 telling, a telling story.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Chapter 3, The Stock Market, Not the Economy, or What Toilet Paper Can Teach Us About Investing? Now, what can toilet paper teach us about investing?
0: Yeah, surprisingly so much. If we're talking about what happened in, you know, when we were all locked down in the COVID pandemic. So so think back to what started happening in March and April of 2020, where in addition to being locked down, you couldn't find toilet paper anywhere. If you went to Walmart or Target or Walgreens or wherever you buy your toilet paper or Amazon or what have you you know, there was no toilet paper. And if you think about it, like Dieter, if I was like, oh my gosh, we're going to have a pandemic. Like, what are you, know, what do you want to stock up on? Like for me, it would be like, I need to make sure I have plenty of water and beans and I don't know, maybe like beer. Right. <laughs> but for whatever reason, people started buying toilet paper. And so then once that happened, Everybody else started buying any and all toilet paper that they could get their hands on because they didn't want to run out, right? So in early uh, into the pandemic, it was probably April, I went to Walgreens to pick up a prescription and the, the shelf was almost entirely empty of toilet paper. There was one package. Now we had plenty of toilet paper at home, but I bought it anyway. And I told the clerk as I was checking out, I was like, "I'm so sorry that I'm buying this toilet paper. I'm being part of the problem and not part of the solution because we have plenty at home, but I don't want to run out." You know, and it's kind of funny. The clerk kind of like looking at me, like, "You know, you know, take your potential, you know, COVID-infected breath and just you know stop explaining complex adaptive systems." But this, what happened in COVID with the toilet paper, is happens because we're social beings and in a social uh, system, it's it's what's known as a complex adaptive system, which means we're all watching each other watch everybody else. And our actions that we take end up being based on what everybody else is doing. And then what everybody else is doing creates feedback loops. So like if there was plenty of toilet paper on the shelves all the time, I wouldn't have bought any toilet paper. I only bought some because other people had bought so much that I was worried we'd be out. And this totally explains what happens in the economy in the stock market, is that we're all watching each other watch each other. And we all learn from what's going on in the real world that gets affected by our own behavior. So it, it makes the, what this means is it, it makes it very hard to predict what's going to happen in the future, just like nobody would have predicted if we have had a pandemic that we would have a toilet paper sh- shortage. Right. Uh, it makes it what's so hard to predict what's going to happen in the economy of the stock market. And it's because it's a complex social si- uh, system.
1: Now, you tell us that the economy and the stock market are not correlated, but a non-financial professional would say, oh, that's what we look at. Tell
0: us yeah, so, about that. yeah. So what this that mental model, the stock market is not the economy, is in my opinion, the most important investment-focused mental model in the book. And really what that is saying is that you can't look at what's going on in the economy or the real world to tell you what's going to happen in the stock market and because they they are not correlated. And when things aren't correlated, they bear no relationship to each other. So economic growth, GDP growth from World War II to the end of 2021 is a 0.03. So basically zero. So What happens instead is the the economy doesn't tell you what's going to happen in the stock market, but what does happen is the stock market tells you ish, not exactly, but tells you ish what's going to happen in the economy. So let me give you an example of this. So again, if let's wind back to, to COVID and the... Top of the market prior to COVID was on March, or excuse me, February 26th. And then from February 26th to March 23rd, 2020, the stock market declined just under 35%. It was an incredibly steep drop, the steepest drop we've ever experienced in the stock market. So what what was going on on March 23rd? Well, we had just had, or I think a few days hence, we're about to have our report. 1,000th reported COVID death. But let's say somebody gave us a crystal ball, and you and I are sitting there on March 23rd with a crystal ball, and here's what the crystal ball says. It says, hey, we've had about our 1,000th COVID death. By the end of the year, there's going to be 336,000, 6 million worldwide over the next three years. The economy is going to contract by 8.9% this quarter the biggest contraction since the Great Depression, and unemployment going to spike to nearly 15%. Again, the biggest since the Great Depression. Entire industries are going to shut down. NBA, NHL are going to cancel. Um, you can't travel internationally, even to Canada. And this isn't going to go just on for weeks. This isn't going to go on for years. Like if we had the, that crystal ball that told us that, like we would probably want to just take our money out of the stock market and maybe even buried in our backyard. But what happened is that March 23rd was the market bottom, and the market rebounded by 70% by the end of the year. So what this tells us, and there's many, many other examples where the stock market moves in advance of the economy, is you cannot look to what's happening in the real world, in the economy, to tell you what's going on in the stock market. First of all, you can't predict what's going to happen in the real world usually. But even if you could, it would not tell you what the stock market's going to do.
1: Now, how can Minsky help us become better investors? You talk about the Minsky model.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The Hyman Minsky was an economics professor who was actually at Washington University in St. Louis, where I also teach some, some classes, but uh, he's become quite famous these days. But at the time he wasn't well known. And prior to Minsky, what economics um, profession said, or excuse me, economics orthodoxy said, is that recessions are caused by external shocks to the system. That basically the economy seeks equilibrium and is only knocked off course by things external. So you can think back in the 1970s, you know, we had the OPEC oil crisis, right? That caused, you know, that that caused a a recession. Um, In 2020, the recession that we had was caused by COVID, right? So these are things external to the economy. But what Minsky said is that's not always how recessions happen. And in fact, as often as, as not, the economy enters recession based on things that happen in the economy itself. So what he said is, is stability creates instability, which causes um, recessions or even panic. And, and, and so for example, what happened in 2008, 2009, which was the great financial crisis that was entirely there was no external thing that happened it was caused by excessive risk taking mainly in the real estate sector but other areas which overheated the economy and then when it collapsed caused a you know caused a financial crisis and so this was you know this was something that was not really taken seriously and he was actually derided during his lifetime unfortunately for him he died in 1996 and did not get to see the dot com bust which was uh you know kind of instability created by stability nor the financial crisis which was his theory as well and and so this idea that the stability creates instability and can create economic turmoil is is a great model for people to remember because in retrospect what it means is really the riskiest times or when everything seems to be going smoothly <laughs> and the economy is expanding and, and people start you know taking excessive amounts of risk. And then in retrospect, the best time to invest is when there's so-called blood in the streets, economically speaking, and everything seems to be going haywire, that the instability itself, once it gets washed out, becomes stability again. So it's just important to think about these economic cycles. And as an investor or a business owner, or even a consumer, when things seem to be going great, maybe, you know, don't be so risk-on. And when th- seems, things seem to be going poorly, you know, that's typically the best time to to invest and to, pl- and to deploy cash.
1: Now, you talk about the
0: experts giving us lots of predictions.
1: Should we be aware of that?
0: Yeah, so some experts are great at predictions, and, and really they're in areas – where there's a, a discernible pattern that is going to repeat. So, you know, for example, doctors often do a good job. So if you have an injury or a disease and they're like, okay you know you, we're going to do this treatment and here's what we can expect from your your treatment so like i've been injured before my orthopedic surgeon has said you know here's going to be the path of your recovery and you know he may not get it exactly right but he, he's pretty good about telling me what i can foresee in the future right and i think we maybe have all experienced that with with different doctors and with illness or injury or or what have you but in other areas that are complex adaptive systems like the stock market and the economy or even politics, experts are atrocious at predicting what is going to happen. And I talk about in my book a few examples of how bad experts are in these three areas of investments and politics and, and economics. And and really where the experts are wrong is where we need them most. So for instance, if, if you had an investment predictor an expert that could say oh guess what we're about to have a financial crisis or we're going to have this you know 35% drop because of covid or or what have you you know those sort of predictions would be really helpful but the, the experts always miss those big downturns and in fact they're usually not that great when it comes to you know predicting how things will be in the future whether it's up or down and really the the future when it comes to investing in the economy is largely unpredictable. Again, it moves in cycles, but exactly when things are going to move or change or, you know, the the shape of uh, you know, recessions or recoveries really aren't known. You know, f- for example, as we, we talk right now in, you know, mid-June of 2023, the experts have been predicting a recession for nearly a year that has yet to occur and may never occur. I was just reading something today saying maybe the recession will never happen. But if you were list- you know, if you were trying to um make decisions about your business or uh, stock portfolio based on those predictions over the last year, you would have been wrong, 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 and wrong. As we sit here, the stock market is you know up double digits for the year. So it, it, I think it's really important for investors not to think that they need to have a prediction of the future to invest well. I mean, it would be great if somebody could predict the stock market for us, but they can't. So it's better to invest knowing that the future is unpredictable and invest that way because that's the, that's reality. That's the truth. And it's, it's sometimes hard to accept, but you know, when we advise our clients, we invest as if we don't know the future because we don't. And we find that that's um, been really successful is, is to invest in a fashion where the future is you know somewhat uncertain at the very least.
1: And you talk about skill and luck in investing and you use the example about Tom. Tell us about Tom.
0: Oh yeah. So, um, this is a interesting story that I reflect back on is that, um, you know, in, in uh, early 2009, it was, it was February, you know, I was reading all these things about like, you know, the economy's Gonna, you know, the financial system is gonna collapse. And I was reading all this financial information all the time, and, and basically, I'd been in a panic for nearly a year about what was happening in the stock market and the economy. And I, I was looking for someone that might have some answers. So I had been at an investment conference a, f- a few years prior and had exchanged cards with this hedge fund manager. And he had he had made a presentation at the the conference. And he was so impressive. He went to a, you know a top you know, Ivy league undergrad, he had a top MBA, his hedge fund had been incredibly successful. So I arranged a call with him. I was looking for some guidance on what the future might hold. And I call him Tom, it wasn't his real name, but that's why I call him in the book. And, and we ended up having this conversation where I was like, he, he said, you know, if you think things are bad news now, and the stock market was down about 50% from his high, he's like, we're just at like the appetizer course of like a A meal of misery is basically what he said. And he said that their firm, which had managed about $3 billion, had moved almost their entire investment portfolio for clients into gold or cash. And then most concerning to me, he had actually bought farmland in New Jersey. He was based in New York City. He bought farmland in New Jersey with like a little cabin and some arable land. And he had stocked it with seeds and, you know, cans of beans and all the stuff, you know, maybe even toilet paper, but all the stuff you'd hoard for a pandemic and generators and guns. And he said he had, He bought all these gold coins that he kept in a safe in his New York apartment to buy his family safe passage out of New York City if they needed it. So as you can imagine, this guy was so smart and his firm had done so well, it completely freaked me out. I remember just practically being, you know, panicked and practically had a panic attack afterwards. And, you know, fortunately, we didn't take any action based on his prediction. And a mere few weeks later, the market bottomed and is up over 600% since then. And so I think back on Tom as a reminder that even people that are just rock stars, you know, in the the investment industry can't always predict what's going to happen in the future. Now I I will tell you, like, he might've been right. Like things could have happened differently. Like if you, if you ran, you know, the, if, if you ran a thousand iterations of where we were in February, 2009, you know, at least some of them he was right. So like, I do respect the the fact that he could have been right but i remind myself that you know it 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 really really to kind of ignore uh these sort of predictions when it when it, even when they're an expert and a, a rock star
1: now you took the one stock challenge what did you learn about this one stock challenge
0: yeah so i was i was uh i'm part of a kind of an international uh network of investment professionals and a few years ago, they said, Hey, let's do a, let's do a stock picking challenge. So here were the rules. So basically everybody that participated and there was I don't know, like 20, 27, 29 of us, something like that. We participated, you picked one stock and then you gave your reason for your pick. And then at the end of the time period, it was like five or six months, whichever stock did the best was the winner. And so basically it was just for fun. There was, you know, no, no monetary prize. But it was interesting. I, I was I, I was looking through all the stock picks. Everybody was listing you know, all these companies. Some of them I heard of, some of them I hadn't, and all the reasons for why they thought it was a great pick. But what I decided to do is you can actually find multiple of these on the internet. I, I picked on the internet um, a random stock ticker generator. And I just said, give me a random stock. And it gave me a company called uh, New York and Company, which I had heard of but it was a women's clothing retailer and I looked at his performance and I hated this stock. So at the time that I made this pick the S&P 500 or the stock market was up about 12%. This stock was down for the year even though the, the stock market was up and since its market since it's high you know years prior it was down about 90% from its high. So I was like this company this company stinks. And I almost decided to pick a different stock, but I was like, hey, random means random. So I submitted it. So at the end of the contest period, I didn't win, but I came in fourth. This stock of New York and company over the the contest period returned 68%, 68%. And so the top returning was like, you know, like 160% or something, but most stocks underperformed the market. <laughs> so on a, on a whole, we were losers. But I, I always look back on that and, and think about all the lessons I learned from, you know, getting a 68% return with a stock that I hated that I almost threw back and picked a different one. And it just shows, you know, the amount of randomness and luck that is evolved in stock picking. But, but I'll tell you, longer term, it was a horrible pick because the company ended up going out of business a number of years later. There's no more New York and company. So it, it ended up being a stinky company. But, you know, over the contest period, it, it was this incredible return. Um, yeah, so I, I thought it was pretty interesting.
1: You also talked about an amateur investor beating a professional. Tell us about that.
0: Yeah. So, um, when you think about whether an activity, the results are made mainly governed by skill or mainly governed by luck, you know, you know, things that are entirely skill-based or things like chess or, you know, maybe like a running or swimming race or some sports are, you know, have a lot of skill to them. Like, you know, tennis, like a higher skilled tennis player usually beats the lesser skilled, but not always. But then you have things that are completely driven by luck, like, you know, slot machines and the lottery and roulette. And really where investing falls is over towards the luck side of the continuum. And, um, you know, there is skill involved in investing. Absolutely but there's quite a bit of luck and a a way you can tell whether something you know a result of something is is going to be mainly governed by skill versus luck is there's two interesting questions you can ask and the first that you can ask is whether you can lose on purpose so for instance if i were to um you know have a running race against my five-year-old nephew like i know i could beat him but i can lose on purpose right so it shows you that there's skill in, you know, running races or, you know, a higher ranked chess person can decide to to lose on purpose or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But you can't really lose on purpose when it comes to, you know, slot machines or the lottery, right? You don't win much, but you can't guarantee that you will you will lose. Um, when it comes to investing, it's really hard to lose on purpose. Like if you knew a stock was going to go down, you can make a bunch of money on it by doing something called short selling. And as my you know pick of New York and Company that we just discussed shows, like I thought that was a horrible stock, but yet if I had bet against it. I would have been a big loser over that contest period. Right. So, so that's one way you can tell is that, that stock investing is largely driven by luck and it's, it's that, that it's because it's hard to lose on purpose. But the, but the second question you ask is can an amateur beat a pro, right? And there's no such thing as an amateur versus pro, you know, lottery player or, or, uh, you know, slot machine player, but there are, you know, amateur and pro chess players or swimmers or whatever. And in general, an amateur can't beat a pro. Well, when it comes to investing, amateurs beat pros all the time. So for example, for example in 2020, um, you know, our firm that oversees at the time was probably, you know, $12, 13000000000 billion. And we have, you know, hundreds of portfolios, you know, 60 families, but it's hundreds of portfolios. Our top performing portfolio was that of a middle school aged girl <laughs> and you know her parents are clients and we had helped her she had gotten a gift from her grandparents uh, a, a little bit of money and we had helped her pick some stocks and she picked apple because she likes her iphone and netflix because she likes to stream netflix and and tesla because her friend's dad dri- drives a tesla and she thought it was a really cool car and it just so happens that those are three of the top 20 performing stocks in 2020 and she completely crushed the stock market and. All of our client portfolios. And one way to look at it would be oh, well, little Sophie, you know, maybe we should hire her straight out of middle school and she should pick stocks for our clients. But really, a better way to look at it is that so many of the uh, investment results, especially over the short term and investing, um, you know, an amateur can beat a pro. So it just tells you that there's a lot of luck involved, especially over the short term.
1: Now, what is the overall message you want the reader to leave with? Once they finish your book.
0: Yeah. So really what, you know, my book's called the uncertainty solution. So really what the solution is, is it's not that my book is going to give investors, you know, a a peek into the the future and say, you know, the future is no longer uncertain. The book's really more about how to deal with uncertainty in an effective way to make better decisions, have better behavior. And I hope have a lot less worry and anxiety around uncertainty and, and really as investors, or, you know, there's a lot of lessons just for, you know, the real world regular life in, in the book is when faced with uncertainty, what should you do instead of worrying or flailing around or doing some of the things that we usually do in the face of uncertainty? And, and so I really hope that, that readers of the book will will be able to use my book to help build their own latticework of, of mental models and, and know which ones to pull out in the, the face of uncertainty or making investment decisions. And, and really to have, you know, more confidence um, that they don't need to be, you know, up on every single little thing that's happening in the news or the economy. Um, and that they don't need to find some guru that can, you know, predict the future for them because they don't exist. And, and to, to really have more confidence about how to, uh, to proceed in the face of uncertainty.
1: Well, I've taken up enough of your time. What is the next project you'll be working on?
0: So, I am working on another book, and it's called How to Be Wealthy. It may not end up being called that. I've learned that publishers sometimes change your multiple times your title, but it's it's not how to how to get wealthy. It's once you're wealthy, and you know there's various definitions of that, uh, both financially and you know other types of well being. Once you're wealthy, how do you do it well? How do you how do you have abundance, but also have purpose and happiness. And how do you not ruin the the next generation with your, with your wealth? How do you choose a good quest and make a positive impact on the the world or your community and your family? So that's what my next book's about. I'm super excited about it. I think I have a great perspective from working over a quarter century with, you know, families with, with quite a bit of wealth. So, uh, pretty interesting, I think.
1: Well, we'll be looking forward to that next project. Again, thank you for being on the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it.